Our text for this morning is Micah chapter 2. This is the word of Almighty God. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by a lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich road from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go out and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely Assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Pray with me, please. Lord, We are grateful for your word, even the ones that are a little frightening and maybe a little hard to grasp on first reading, but I pray that you will give us heart and spirit that we might study, see what you had to say to your people, and see what you have to say still to us today. Be glorified, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So one day Jesus was asked by a group of the religious folks of his day to tell him, what's the most important command in all the law of God? Listen to his reply. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son, told us that the most important commands, the the commands that summarize all that God has ever commanded include loving God with everything we've got and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let me then ask you, 
If we're saved by Jesus, changed by Jesus, born again by the grace of God, possessing the Holy Spirit, will the greatest commandments in the word of God matter to you and me? Yeah. If a person is genuinely saved, will she be devoted to God? Sure. If a person is truly saved, will that impact how he treats other peoples around him? Yeah. This morning, as we look at Micah 2, we are going to catch the end of the first of three prophetic cycles in Micah. God's going to pronounce judgment on the people of Israel for evilly treating other people around them and for empty religion. Kind of matches those two important commands. And thanks be to God, the Lord is also going to show us a picture of the hope that is to come so that we're not overwhelmed with all the judgment talk in this Old Testament book. So like last week, we'll look at the word first sent to the people of Micah's day. Then as we wrap up, we're going to find things to apply to our lives too. We're going to seek to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable in the word of God today. So let's divide the chapter into three points, three sections. The first one being, God will judge oppressors. Point number one, God will judge oppressors. Verses one and two, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Y'all remember the Sermon on the Mount? It begins with Jesus giving us a series of eight blessing statements. Remember what we call those eight blessing statements at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes. Good job. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers, etc. Right? We like being blessed. Agree? Are you pro-blessing? We know if you have the blessing of God on your life, you have God's favor, you have God's goodness, you have God's kindness, his smiling countenance shining down on you. Blessed is good. We want it. Now, when Micah opens this oracle, part of the first cycle, in chapter 2, he uses an Old Testament word that is precisely the opposite of a beatitude. It is a woe oracle. If woe is in front of you, you're facing sorrow, not joy, curse, not blessing, judgment, not mercy. If you want to be blessed, you certainly do not want woe. And Micah pronounces woe on a group of men who are both powerful and cruel. God will judge oppressors. Verse 1, we see that the men to be judged are the kind of people who lie in bed at night and scheme cruelty. 
these men, when the day is done, when all calms down, when all gets nice and peaceful and quiet, when there are no distractions, no more emails to answer, they think of evil things to do. Then, when they wake up, they go do the evil that they plotted. How do they pull it off? They got the power to do it. People around them can't stop them. They've got the clout. They've got the money. They've got the strength. They've got the social standing to do whatever it is that they want. They can hurt other people and they can get away with it in their society. And right now you might say to yourself, that doesn't sound realistic. This sounds like one of the cartoon villains in a Despicable Me movie, right? What evil can I perform tomorrow? Nobody just lays in bed and thinks up ways to do evil, do they? Not unless they're some kind of psychopath. No way is Israel full of crazies like that. But look at verse 2 and watch God show us what kind of men these are and what they're up to. They covet the property of others. They want other people's fields and houses and the evil men plot ways to use their money and their authority to push people off their land and out of their homes. Now, in Israel, you got to get this. If you don't get this, you miss the depth of this. In Israel, your land was more than a piece of property for you to do with what you please. Your land in Israel was parceled out specifically to your family as an inheritance for your family and their descendants from God. You were never supposed to permanently sell off your land. You could sell it for a season. You could rent it out for a few years, but you did not get rid of it. You never let it go you weren't supposed to do that. Why? Because it would remove you from the family inheritance. It would remove you from the family homestead. It would, it would be bad. To remove a man from his land in Israel was to rob him and to rob his descendants of the legacy God had given them as part of the chosen people of God. This is worse than mere theft. It's a violation of somebody's status as a part of the covenant people of God. So it sounded early a little dramatic. Micah would talk about villains plotting evil upon their beds. But it surely does not sound otherworldly to us to imagine a wealthy person dreaming up for himself ways to seize an estate that doesn't belong to him. It's not weird to picture a person plotting to pursue power by pushing people off their property. You know, about a century before Micah, the northern kingdom was ruled by an evil man named Ahab. You guys remember him? Ahab deeply desired to own the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. But Naboth knew I'm not supposed to sell off my property permanently. So Ahab pouted and he whined and he cried and he laid in bed and didn't want to get up because he wasn't getting his way. 
until his dear sweetheart of a wife, Jezebel, found out what the problem was. And Jezebel came up with a scheme against Naboth. She convinced evil men to tell lies about Naboth. And ultimately, she had Naboth murdered so Ahab could steal from Naboth and his family the vineyard that the king wanted. That is one clear example of exactly the kind of evil behavior God was condemning in the beginning of Micah 2. Apparently by Micah's day, a hundred years after Ahab, the culture of Israel and the culture of Judah had made it common for the wealthy and for the powerful to steal from the poor and steal from the weak so that they could enrich themselves. And God says, woe on those people, curse on those people, judgment on those people for that evil. Then verses 3 and 4 Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, Because of the evil of these land-grabbing, poor people-hurting monsters, God's about to take action. He pronounced that woe is coming. And he says, this is what they've done. Now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. There's a term from Bible studies, biblical studies, I want you to know because you see it especially present in the Old Testament. In Latin, it's known as the principle of lex talionis. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? Lex is the first word, L-E-X. Talionis is spelled differently than that. (laughs) T-A-L-I-O-N-I-S, note takers. Lex talionis. Literally, that is the law of retaliation. The idea is that God is going to have exact perfect retribution for an offense. You see that principle in the law when the law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, right? The one who retaliates is not to take greater retribution than the sin demands. It is to be just. The justice of God tells us the punishment always will perfectly fit the crime. Lex talionis. So notice the lex talionis at work here. Verse 2. The evil men had been pushing families off their land. Verse 3. God has a punishment devised for the wicked family. The evil use their might to hurt the downtrodden who have no way to protect themselves. God has a punishment planned for which the wicked, from which the wicked cannot escape. He has a yoke from which they cannot remove their necks. It's equal, it's even, it's lex talionis. The wicked will no longer walk haughtily. They're not going to be arrogant. They're not going to walk around like they're the most important people in the land. Why? Because God is going to hand them disaster. Then verse 4, the arrogant wicked, they're met with taunting. They're going to get made fun of. They're going to get teased. Surely the wicked had laughed 
mocked at the poor they were displacing. Now other people are going to sing and mock the destruction of the wicked men. People are going to look at the wicked and in a mocking sing song say, oh, we're utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. That is absolute makey funny sarcasm in the Bible, just so you know. Why? It's fitting. Since the wicked took the portion allotted to the poor, they are going to have their portion taken. Then verse 5. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. It's funny. That two lines is the harshest thing God has said here so far. Our culture, we don't hear it and go, but that was the harshest thing so far said. Think back to the book of Joshua. How many of you have read the book of Joshua? Bible in a year, you might make it to Joshua if you're strong, right? I know some of y'all. Admit it. The first half of the book of Joshua is the half you like reading, right? How many of you kind of have your eyeballs glaze over in part number two of the book of Joshua? None of you are going to admit that? None of you have actually read it, you bunch of liars. All right, here's the thing. Think of the book of Joshua like this. First half of the book, it is all military conquest. God brings the people into the land. We've, we, we, they, we cross the Jordan. We get victory over the Canaanites and the, the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Termites and all that stuff. And, and, and they, they we're winning and we're having victory. Bless you twice. And then, and then we get in there. And Israel's supposed to start settling in the land that God had promised Abraham four centuries earlier. But then that second half of the book, we want to skip it. We don't enjoy reading it because it's all about God apportioning out the land of the tribes. You get surveys of the land. You get boundaries. You find out that the boundary turns north at this particular oak tree and that particular shoreline. And you go, whew. And then you get whole chapters of people casting lots to determine which part of the land goes to which tribe. First half of Joshua is interesting and fascinating with all that conquest of Jericho and Ai and all the rest. But, If you were of the Jewish people, don't you think maybe, just maybe, that that second half of the book would really ring your bell? Because if you were the Jews, if you were of the tribes, you'd be like, no, no, yeah, the conquest was great, but this is the chapter, this is the part of the book where God is fulfilling everything he told us he would do. He portions out our land, he gives us our inheritance. He says, this belongs to you. They would read and celebrate half number two of the book of Joshua, where you and I kind of go, I don't get the map. As time went on, the idea of the lines drawn on the map that demark the inheritance, those lines became synonymous. They became spoken of the same way as the blessing of God. If you've got a place in Israel, that's part and parcel of being a child of God in their minds. Listen to Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, think, of, think like a Jew here. Think like the person that loves hearing about those lines being drawn and those inheritances apportioned. If a person, verse 5, has no lines, no one to cast the lot, no place in God's holy assembly, that person is not part of the family of God in their minds. That person is cut off from the people of God. That person is lost. Micah wants the people to hear this truth. God will judge the oppressor. The wealthy man who used his power to take advantage of and rob the weak is in real trouble. God will do justice. God will retaliate. God will cut that person off from the land. And in fact, as verse 5 shows us, that evil oppressor will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. He will die. That person will face the judgment of God. That person will go to hell. God, through Micah, is telling the rich who steal from the poor, the powerful who oppress the weak, they are facing the holy wrath of Almighty God. The problem is some of the people in Micah's day, they would have claimed, well, but we're the people of Israel. God would never let such a destruction happen to me. Point number two. God will judge false religion. God will judge false religion. Look at 6 and 7. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Did you all hear that, by the way? Do not preach, they preach. By the way, does that not sound like our world today? Don't, don't put your morals on me, I say, as I put my morals on you. The rich, the powerful, the people who are comfortable tell the prophets like Micah, don't talk like that, Micah. I'm not going to listen to you. That last thing is all negative. It's all woe. I won't hear it. No way are we going to face disgrace. No way. Then verse 7 tells you what they say to the prophets not to preach. Don't preach that God has lost patience with us. No way would God bring judgment on us. God's word only does good to the upright. And if we're Israel, surely we're the upright because we belong to Abraham. And if Abraham's our dad, our forefather, we're upright because we're born of Abraham, right? What's happening here? Micah, as a prophet, is being rejected by the people because he won't preach prosperity to the people. The people of Micah's day take some religious half-truths, apply them, and end up with a fully false message. Is God impatient? No, He's not. Of course He's not. But, does the patience of God indicate that He will never judge the wicked? Uh Uh-uh. Yes, 
God will do good to the upright. But just claiming to be a child of God does not make you upright. Your heritage, your nationality, your background does not make you a righteous person. God does good to those who actually belong to him. And the wicked men of Micah's day are proving by their actions they don't belong to the Lord. So what do those people who don't want to hear the word of God do? Look at verses 8 and 9. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children. You take away my splendor forever. Okay, you heard those verses. You tell me, does that sound like upright people to you? No. They've risen up as an enemy against God and God's words. Does that sound upright to you? How have they done it? They steal the robe from one who passes by walking, trusting that they should be able to be safe among decent people. They drive women out of their homes. They take the blessing of God out of the hands of children. Now, you all know, don't you, God speaks really strongly against hurting women. Don't do it. Little side note, husbands, don't hurt your wives. Don't yell at them. Don't you dare be violent. It's unacceptable. God's word always speaks to protect those who are physically weaker. God's word speaks to protect women, always. God's word speaks strongly against hurting children. The people who cannot defend themselves, God says, defend. But what about the stealing of a robe, stealing of a cloak? In Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27, God says, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. That fits the the kind of oppression that we just saw in the first oracle, doesn't it? God reminds us those who take advantage of the disadvantaged are going to face the judgment of God. Verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. There's a pronouncement of what the wicked are going to face. You can imagine the powerful. They look at the poor. They say to the poor, you get up and get out. I want your place. God says to the oppressor, you get up and you get out. Lex talionis. The wicked have brought uncleanness on the land through their cruelty. They will not stand. As we already saw, God will judge the oppressor. Then verse 11. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So Micah returns us right where this second section began. The people want prophets like Micah to shut up. They don't want to hear judgment from his mouth. They only want a preacher who will promise them health and wealth and prosperity and their best life now. And an empty windbag who will just tell people, God's just going to bless and bless and bless you with all the wine and all the stuff that you could ever want. That's the only preacher they want to hear. But God promised judgment to come for the oppressors, verses 1 to 5. 
Here in verses 6 to 11, God shows that there is no solace to be taken in false religion. If your faith isn't real, there's no comfort for you. If you refuse to hear the word of God with its promises of blessing and judgment, you're in deep, deep trouble before God. Now, there should be a question in the minds of those who are hearing Micah. If we had preached from chapter 1 to chapter 2, what we've heard is judgment, 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 judgment. You're in trouble. So Micah's day, the people should be wondering. The northern kingdom is falling because of their idolatry. We know that. There's no question that evil people all through Israel, all through Judah are oppressing the poor. They're snatching their land. They're taking their property. They're leaving people helpless. There's no question that the judgment of God must come on the land for this, regardless of what the evil want the prophets to say. But there's a question. Is there any hope? Will the people of God all be cut off? Will the Assyrians overrun the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? Will they leave no survivors? Are God's promises about to fail? Is God going to so utterly destroy Israel and Judah that his promise that he would bless the world through one of Abraham's children, the promise he would bless the world through one of David's descendants, is it just going to go away? What do you all think? Point number three. God brings hope for the future. Verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break, for, they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Finally, at the end of two full chapters, we get a glimpse of hope. We get a hint of the mercy of Almighty God. We should have known even without these words that God's not going to let his promises be unfulfilled. We should have known that God will never lose his people. God's going to keep a remnant. God will always perfectly keep his promises. Now, it may feel vague to you. It's going to get clearer as the book goes on. God is going to gather his people. God's going to put them together like sheep in a corral. By the way, how you like that? A noisy multitude. God's not saving just a few folks. God's not going to lose any of his people. All of the nation will be represented. And God's going to make a way of escape for his people. Though it looks like Jerusalem is surrounded and there's no way out, God is going to lead his people out to safety. Though it looks like the promises of God might fall to the ground and be broken, God is going to bring a king to Israel to lead them. The Lord himself is going to be the king, the head of the people, and God will lead his people to safety. In Micah's day, 
the people of the southern kingdom, they would have heard this promise and they might have realized this is a guarantee that even if the Assyrians march into your land, they will not destroy you completely. Though they march into the land, though they sack many of the towns leading on the way into Jerusalem, God is never going to let Jerusalem fall to the Assyrians. In the year 701, when Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem, when it looked like there was no hope, God sent an angel, struck down the Assyrian army, and led his people out the gates of Jerusalem to find food and provision, just like he said here. But this promise also foreshadowed the return of Judah from Babylon. Remember, the Jews spent 70 years captive in the Babylonian empire because they sinned against the Lord. But in the year 538, God moved the heart of King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, to release the Jews, to bring them back to their land, to let them rebuild Jerusalem. And Zerubbabel led thousands of Jews to the city, began rebuilding the temple and reset, again, this place that God said his people would be. God would not lose his people. God would not let his promises be unfulfilled. God has hope for the future for those who would stay and remain his people. Now, like last week, we've seen what God has to say through Micah to the people of Micah's day. But what about you and me? Do these words from God have any application in modern times? What do you bet? Do you think these words from the Old Testament have anything to do with you and me? Or was that just a nice history lesson? They probably have something to say, don't they? God will judge the oppressor. Y'all know what? God still will judge the oppressor. I understand that the word oppressor has become a loaded word, a weaponized word in our modern political world. But you know what? That does not mean we can ignore the word of the Lord because people are using that word in unfair ways. God pronounced his judgment on people who would use their strength, their power, their position to rob people who have less than them. Have we ever seen ourselves do that in this nation? What do you think? Yeah. It has most certainly happened. I mean, the easy one is just to look back at the evils of slavery. And we know that in our past, people who currently possessed strength used the strength that they possessed to take the freedom and the rights away from people who did not have strength at that time. That was evil. And anything that looks like it today is still evil. If we're going to honor God, we've got to watch out for the temptation to be the oppressor. God does not condemn the wealthy or the powerful in Scripture for having property or position. God does, however, passionately condemn those who use their power to take advantage of or do harm to others. God wants people to gain by doing honest work in an honest way. God never calls on His people to gain by taking from others. And realize in our culture, there's more than one kind of clout you can use to take from others. Even if you think you're the weak one or whether you're the strong one. Today, 
Someone who feels themselves to be in a weak position can actually go out and destroy someone's livelihood and career by things they do on the internet. Making false claims. Canceling someone's business because they didn't behave the way they wanted them to. And today, rich people still have really big opportunities to take advantage of the people who are poorer than them, those who are less socially prominent than them. And it's evil. Bottom line, whether you're weak or whether you're strong, do not seek to take things from others for your own gain, for your own vengeance, for your own selfishness. Do not let yourself be the oppressor. By the way, in case you're worried, this is not me giving myself over to any political agenda whatsoever. This is me seeking to honestly proclaim to you the word of Almighty God. Do not, Christian, put yourself forward at the cost of taking from others. Do not seek your benefit by stealing the benefits that other people should have. Do not think that God will ignore the squashing of anybody. Know that the judgment of God is a real thing. Sin's real, justice is real, hell is real, and where you and I have sinned against the Lord, we must, we absolutely must find the mercy of God before it's too late. Our second point was God condemns those who would embrace false religion. The people wanted Micah only to say things they liked hearing. How true is that today? (laughs) Paul warned of a time when people would no longer tolerate sound doctrine, but would gather for themselves teachers to say what their itching ears wanted to hear. We must never give in to the temptation to preach a half-truth from Scripture. We must present the Word of God clearly, faithfully, honestly, even when that Word says things we don't feel good about hearing. Certainly, we have to avoid everything that hints at prosperity theology, modern liberation theology. God's word does not allow us to subject the gospel to our own reshaping that it might grant us either the money we want, the easy lives we want, or the reversal of fortune we want. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about you glorifying God as a saint saved by grace. The gospel is not about you getting your way in the here and now. Third, God promises hope. Micah showed his people God would protect a remnant of his people in the near future. But God also had in mind another shepherd who would gather his sheep into one fold. God had in mind another king who would lead his people through the gate. Because you need to see this. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Yes, I know it's a fun chapter. One of my favorites. Think about that stuff about a king and his people being a sheep and gathering a multitude together. All that stuff that he said in Micah 2 at the very end, the last two verses, 12 and 13. But I want you to look at John 10. Start at verse 7. Jesus speaking here, just so you know. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now look down at verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Watch this multitude here. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Do you hear the glory there? Jesus promised to be the good shepherd and the gate for the sheep. In Micah, God promised he would gather the people of God and lead them to safety with God as their king. God fulfilled that promise in Jesus and God is still fulfilling that promise in Jesus. Dear friends, every person has earned the judgment of God. Our only hope is that we would be rescued. God sent Jesus, God the Son, to be our rescuer. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can be forgiven of our sins, brought into God's family, and granted life forever. Have you found God's forgiveness by grace through faith in Christ? I urge you, if you want to know God, avoid his judgment, find life in joy, come to Jesus in faith, turn away from sin, follow Jesus as Lord And if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, look at your life. Look at your own life, Christian, if you now know Jesus. Where might you look like the oppressor who uses his power, her power, to gain at the expense of others? See those things and repent. Where do you have the temptation to only look at the parts of the Bible that make you feel good? Get under the full counsel of God and repent. Where do you fear for the future? Hear God's promise of hope and look forward to the coming of your great shepherd king and his eternal kingdom with joy. Let's pray together, friends. God, your word is beautiful. And I would plead with you now that as we've heard it, you would bring it to bear. Make it apply. Make us see how it applies. Make us be a people who are deeply devoted to the gospel, deeply committed to grace, deeply willing to repent, not to earn your favor, but to have the joy of your glory. There's no hope we have apart from Jesus. We ask you, God, give us hope in Jesus and change us and shape us and make us what you want us to be. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.